The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Toward a Goal of Breathing Easy. Identifying which of your patients with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps can benefit from targeted biologic therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash TJV 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, my name is Anju Peters. I'm a professor of medicine and an allergist immunologist at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. Today's activity is on chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. The title of the talk is Toward a Goal of Breathing Easy, Identifying Which of Your Patients with Chronic Rhinosinusitis with Nasal Polyps Can Benefit from Targeted Biologic Therapy. So what is chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps and which patients might benefit from biologic therapy? We'll talk about that today. When we want to define chronic rhinosinusitis, it's important to remember it's an inflammatory condition that has multiple phenotypes. Today, we'll focus on CRS or chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. In general, these patients have symptoms for at least 12 weeks or more, and at least two or more of the following symptoms, which often include nasal drainage, which can be either runny nose or anteriorly or posteriorly as postnasal drainage. Often it's mucopurulent, but not always. These patients suffer from nasal congestion or blockage. They complain of facial pain, pressure, or fullness. And one of the most bothersome symptoms, especially in patients with nasal polyps, is decreased sense of smell. So in addition to symptoms present for more than 12 weeks, these patients have to have some objective evidence of inflammation. And this inflammation can either be observed on endoscopy, where you may notice nasal polyps, you may see swelling or inflammation or edema, or you can see it on a sinus CT scan, which will show inflammation of the sinuses. So in general, chronic rhinosinusitis has symptoms for at least 12 weeks or more and some objective evidence of inflammation. Chronic rhinosinusitis is classified as either CRS with nasal polyps, which is about 20% of patients with chronic rhinosinusitis or CRS, as you'll see abbreviated in this talk, and about 80% are CRS without nasal polyps or CRS SNP. An important subset of patients with chronic rhinosinusitis or CRS with nasal polyps is patients with AERD or aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease or as our colleagues in Europe would say, NERD, or non-steroidal exacerbated respiratory disease. These are patients who have nasal polyps, asthma, and will have a sensitivity to either aspirin or non-steroidals and will get worsening lower or upper respiratory symptoms if they were to take either NSAIDs or ibuprofen or aspirin. These patients tend to be a subset of patients with polyps with the worst or most severe disease. So when we see patients with chronic rhinosinusitis, you, know, you think, is this chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps? I think it's important, again, to go over a little bit of the epidemiology. So CRS with nasal polyps, and nasal polyps tend to be in benign inflammatory masses. The prevalence is thought to be 1% to 4% of the population worldwide. And again, 20 to 30% of total CRS is CRS with nasal polyps. These patients classically present with lots and lots of nasal congestion or blockage where they have trouble breathing through their nose and also have loss of sense of smell. 
Studies have suggested that patients with nasal polyps, especially eosinophilic nasal polyps, are more likely to complain of ear fullness or discomfort in their ear. They complain of sneezing. Again, one of the main symptoms they complain of congestion or blockage, so they can't breathe through their nose. And then this bothersome loss of smell, which is also associated with loss of taste often. Patients with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps have other comorbidities that are associated with this disease. The most common one is presence of asthma. Almost 60 to 70% of patients with nasal polyps have asthma and often is associated with more severe disease, and we'll talk about that in a bit. In addition, about 50 to 60% of patients with nasal polyps are allergic. The exact link between nasal polyps and allergic rhinitis is not clear. Some studies suggest patients with allergic rhinitis and nasal polyps may have worse disease, but it's important to remember that they coexist and both need to be treated. Another thing it's important to remember when we think of patients with nasal polyps is that CRS with nasal polyps can have significant impact on quality of life in these patients in both physical as well as psychological domains. As I mentioned earlier, these patients will complain of ear symptoms and, of course, bothersome nasal symptoms, congestion, blockage, post-nasal drainage, loss of smell and taste, ear fullness and pressure. They often have comorbid asthma, which can present with cough, shortness of breath, or wheezing. So in addition to ear and nasal symptoms, as well as lower respiratory symptoms that often coexist in patients with nasal polyps, these patients can have significant impairment of their psychological domains, including higher risk for anxiety and depression. They have significant impact on their sleep and will also complain of daytime fatigue. Now let's get a sense of what patients with CRSWNP experience with a look at this patient video clip. I was first um, hit with what I thought was a cold back in 2001, and that was the beginning of this journey, um, and it took about two years to actually be diagnosed. It truly was like a cold. Um, you know, I was just constantly stuffy. Um, I even had symptoms like sneezing and my eyes would be puffy and um, there was just, and and I was getting no relief whatsoever. So I kind of realized after (laughs) about a week or so that this isn't really a cold, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was. Um, And I had never had previously um, any sinus issues at all, including really never had sinus infections. So this was all very new to me. I would say one of the worst uh, symptoms of this disease is the constant mouth breathing. Um, That just really, it makes it difficult to sleep. It makes it difficult to um, exercise. It makes it difficult to take complete deep breaths. And so that, um, especially in the beginning, that was really, um, really a problem for me and, and really was something that I struggled with, especially at night. Well, of course, if your sleep is affected, you're constantly um, fatigued. And not only are you fatigued, then that affects your attitude towards everything. Um, it's almost like you're in a constant state of a bad mood. So when you don't, you don't get good quality sleep, it just, it, it really does interfere with your work, 
with your social life, with your interactions with your friends and your family. Um, and you know, it, it's honestly just a, a quite constant state of misery. When you don't feel like you can get a big deep breath or you feel like, I, I hesitate to use the word smother, but you almost feel like you're not getting in enough air. And that will cause great anxiety. And especially in situations where you don't have control, like let's say for instance on an airplane, when you don't have control of being able to, I just need to step away from this or I need to get outside or I need to, like I said, step away and, t and try to catch my breath. So those kinds of situations um, do create great anxiety. And as you deal with this day after day, month after month, year after year, you, you start to feel, I won't say clinically depressed, but you do feel down because you constantly feel like you are not, you're not healthy. You're not, uh, you just, you don't feel well. Your body feels run down and you're, you know, you know this and it's, it, it's a sense of when is this ever gonna let up? When am I ever gonna feel good again? As you can see, CRS with nasal polyp has significant impact on patients. So this impairment of quality of life has been demonstrated very well in this study that was published in 2019, where Khan and colleagues looked at quality of life impairment from nasal polyps in the Galen CRS cohort. And what they found, if you look on the left, that CRS with nasal polyp patients compared to population norm had worse physical components as well as mental component on the SF36 quality of life studies. On the right-hand side, you can see that both physical and mental component, again, were decreased in patients with CRS with nasal polyps compared to the population norm. And if these patients had comorbid asthma or had NERD or AERD, the most severe type of nasal polyp subgroup we talked about, they had the worst quality of life measurements, both in physical component as well as in the mental component. So important to remember that patients with CRSWNP have significantly lower health-related quality of life compared to the general population, and that this impact is higher in patients who have worse disease, comorbidities such as asthma, or those that have NERD or AERD. So when we see patients with nasal polyps, it's important to remember how to establish diagnosis. We talked about that they have to have symptoms for 12 weeks or more, and also objective evidence of inflammation. As you can see on the left, the CT shows significant mucosal thickening with all the gray that you can see that's classic for CRS with nasal polyps. In the middle, you see an endoscopy, the presence of nasal polyp with dried mucus. And on the right-hand side, you see the nasal polyp with some purulent drainage on endoscopy. So again, symptoms and objective evidence of inflammation, either by CT or endoscopy. Now that we've talked about how to recognize CRSWNP, let's talk about treatment. So CRSWNP is a chronic inflammatory disease and needs long-term medical treatment. If these patients have mild disease, we start out with treatment with topical nasal steroid sprays. However, we can then move on to other deliveries of topical steroids if someone has more moderate to severe disease. 
In addition, we have now biologics that are approved for treatment of CRSWNP, so one more treatment choice for us and our patients. And then finally, many of these patients end up needing surgery to remove the nasal polyps. However, if they do get surgery, and we'll talk about this a bit more, this is a chronic medical condition, so these patients still continue to need some type of medical therapy. So the traditional treatment approaches for CRSWNP, and we'll talk about some of the limitations. One of the first things our patients try is saline irrigation. There is some evidence for benefit for large-volume saline irrigation. However, it is limited. Many patients do complain of side effects from this as well. As I mentioned earlier, these patients need some type of topical steroid. This is a long-term treatment to decrease their inflammation, and there are many methods that are available to deliver these topical steroids into the sinuses. These patients can sometimes use large-volume steroid rinses or topical steroid sprays that are available over-the-counter. However, they're just not enough in most patients. Another traditional treatment approach was use of oral or sometimes topical antibiotics. Antibiotics can be useful in treating infectious exacerbations in patients with nasal polyp, but evidence of significant efficacy, especially long-term, is lacking for CRSWNP. We also worry about all the adverse effects associated with frequent use of antibiotics. Leukotriene modifiers, such as Montelukast, help some patients with nasal polyps. And then finally, if their polyps are severe, a short course of oral steroids is often given to these patients. However, again, we need to worry about adverse effects from frequent or long courses of oral steroids. So this is a limited treatment option. In terms of surgery, many of these patients end up needing surgery to remove a polyp. However, it is not a cure for CRSWNP as polyps may recur in many of these patients. There is a prospective multi-center study that showed that in patients who underwent nasal polyp removal, at six months, 35% had recurrence of nasal polyps and up to 40% had recurrence of nasal polyps by 18 months after surgery. And on endoscopic exam, edema was present in more than 75% of these patients by six months, including up to 18 months. This study and other studies have looked to see which are the patients where polyp recurrence happens, and studies have suggested that type 2 inflammation, that is characteristic of CRSWNP, so the worst type 2 inflammation you have, more likely a patient will have severe disease and recurrence after surgery. I was given oral steroids, um, loads and loads of them, and was on mega doses, and it just seemed like constantly on rounds of oral steroids. Once I was diagnosed, and I had found a physician that knew exactly what my condition was, um, then we just tried various uh, medications, and... Some of them worked, some of them didn't, some of them worked for a period of time, and I know there was one that we actually used that then was discontinued for that particular use, and so it was quite the ordeal to work through all these different treatments to uh, find out what did work and what didn't work and what would work long term and what would provide the most relief. In the beginning, I would say a definite hard no. Um, it, it just, I just remember the first doctors that I saw were 
this is what it is here this is how we treat it um, not very sympathetic to all of the symptoms that you that you have and not only the physical symptoms but also the other things for instance the ability to get good sleep or the inability to get good sleep um, you know just all of those other things that we talked about earlier the anxiety and the de the depression that comes along with this how this affects your day-to-day -day life and your day-to-day -day activities but in my journey with this, part of what I discovered was I have to be my own advocate and I have to find, it's up to me to find the right physician that will listen to me and that will then take the time to find the right treatment for me personally, not just a generic treatment of this is what, this is how we treat it. Because I, I dare I say every patient is different and it takes a while to figure out what works and what doesn't. I have had two surgeries. Um, one was er very early on, um, before the official diagnosis was even in, I had my nasal polyps removed. Very quickly after that surgery, um, they returned. And then about I, would, I think it was about 10 years later, I had another surgery. That surgery has been a great success. I've actually since then, which that surgery was in 2011, I have had zero polyp regrowth. Um, I chalk that up to finally having found the right medical team to uh, manage my diagnosis and also to finding the right cocktail, if you will, of medications that work. We had talked a little bit about comorbidities in CRSW and P earlier. It's important to recognize that there is a shared relationship among many type 2 inflammatory diseases. There's a similar inflammatory pathway with type 2 inflammation characterizing these comorbidities. So the two that are associated with nasal polyps are allergic rhinitis and asthma. As I talked about earlier, more than 50% of patients with nasal polyps may be allergic, and it's important to treat both their allergic rhinitis and their chronic rhinosinusitis. And then more than half of the patients with nasal polyps have lower airway disease presenting as asthma, and there is evidence to suggest that patients with nasal polyps tend to have more severe asthma. And then less common, about 10 to 16% of patients with nasal polyp have the AERD or aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease subtype. These patients tend to have more severe sinus disease, often needing multiple surgeries, have worse upper airway symptoms, loss of sense of smell, nasal blockage, and they also tend to have worse asthma, often having frequent exacerbations needing oral steroids. So these comorbidities of asthma and allergic rhinitis are common in patients with nasal polyps. It's important to ask patients about these conditions as patients may not volunteer that they have lower respiratory symptoms, especially if they are seeing one of the surgeons for their CRS with nasal polyps. Questions that can help us as healthcare professionals figure out if someone has asthma is to ask them about cough, especially coughing fits, shortness of breath or wheezing. If they have trouble exercising, 
if they wake up in the middle of the night coughing or short of breath, or if they just have frequent bronchitis, because that may just be a sign that a patient has asthma. And the reason it's important to recognize these comorbidities, because these do affect patients' treatment plan, as these tend to be chronic conditions as well. And as I had alluded earlier, these comorbidities are associated with more severe disease and can lead to more recalcitrant disease or disease recurrence. So patients with asthma tend to have worse nasal polyps and patients with nasal polyps tend to have more severe asthma. In fact, almost one third of patients with severe asthma will have nasal polyps and it's associated with more frequent asthma exacerbations. Let's move on now to biologics that target the type 2 inflammation, which is characteristic of CRS with nasal polyps. So in this slide, we'll go over the whole inflammatory pathway. On this slide, you can see on the top is the airway epithelium. The airway is faced by allergens, bacteria, viruses, parasites, pollutants, etc. And when these triggers are faced by the airway epithelium, the epithelium or the lining of the airway releases what are called alarmins or type 2 inducers, IL-25, IL-33, and TSLP. These type 2 inducers lead to Th0 cells to Th2 cells and also lead the ILC2 cells to release type 2 cytokines, IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13 that are in the center of the slide. These type 2 cytokines lead to the type 2 inflammation that's characteristic of nasal polyps. IL-4 and IL-13 play a role in production of IgE, the allergic antibody. IL-5 plays a role in eosinophilic inflammation that's characteristic of nasal polyps. And IL-13 plays a role in mucus hypersecretion. Dupilumab blocks IL-4 and IL-13 and thus reduces type 2 inflammation. Mapalizumab blocks IL-5, and benralzumab blocks IL-5 receptor alpha, which leads to decrease in eosinophilic inflammation, and omalizumab blocks the IgE antibody. So let's talk a lot more in terms of biologic therapy in context of multidisciplinary management of CRSWNP. So who is a candidate for biologic therapy? This has been actually discussed a lot more in Europe as part of the multidisciplinary euphoria expert panel. According to euphoria, the indications for biologic therapy for patients with nasal polyps, these patients should have bilateral nasal polyps. And then they have suggested, based on if a patient's had surgery or not, they should have certain criteria. If a patient's had surgery, then three of the criteria are suggested for biologic therapy, and these criteria include evidence of type 2 inflammation, need for systemic oral corticosteroids, at least two or more courses in the past year, significant impairment of quality of life, significant loss of smell, and diagnosis of comorbid asthma. If someone has not had surgery, then the euphoria guidelines suggest at least four of the criteria that I just mentioned. And the reason for this is to make sure what we're using biologic to target type 2 inflammation. What we're not talking about today is that biologics are expensive, so you want to make sure you use it in the right patient. In addition, Euphoria has an update in 2021 that evaluates risk versus benefits of surgery and biologics and how to counsel our patients with nasal polyps. In addition to discussing who's a candidate for biologic therapy, we know not everybody should get biologic for their CRS. And this has been discussed by Euphoria and includes patients who don't have nasal polyps, 
patients who don't have type 2 inflammation, patients who have cystic fibrosis polyps, or those that have unilateral nasal polyps, because those don't tend to be type 2 inflammation, patients with mucoceles, patients that cannot take biologics for other reasons, or we think that patients will be non-compliant because this is chronic therapy. So in addition to euphoria, there are other guidelines that have discussed treatment of nasal polyps. However, some of these guidelines were published prior to the phase three studies for omalizumab and meplizumab. So they don't really cover these in detail. One of the guidelines that does cover it is the IACI guideline that says that when they looked at evidence for type 2 targeting biologics for CRS with nasal polyps, they did discuss that dupilumab can reduce rescue surgery for nasal polyps or oral corticosteroid use with moderate certainty. Dupilumab can improve sense of smell and quality of life and symptom scores. For omalizumab, they found that omalizumab can reduce rescue surgery, improve sense of smell and quality of life with high certainty, and can reduce rescue medication use, improve symptoms, and reduce nasal polyp score by moderate certainty. And for mepolizumab, they said there was low levels of certainty in terms of reduction of nasal polyp size and improvement in symptoms. So what I think is important to remember, based on the European guidelines, we in U.S. will have guidelines from our practice parameters soon. However, based on the multiple guidelines, it's important to remember that these patients have nasal polyps, have comorbid other conditions, and a multidisciplinary collaboration and coordination of care is necessary. Patients often feel that they're not referred to specialists in time. So it's important for us as healthcare physicians and healthcare workers who take care of patients with nasal polyps that we educate both the primary care physicians and our patients on timely diagnosis and referrals to specialists. Every patient with CRS should have at least one evaluation for asthma and allergies since these are comorbid conditions. We've talked mostly in terms of nasal polyps, so they should have their lung function measured by spirometry if they have any history suggestive of asthma. They should either get skin testing for allergies or blood testing for specific IgE for allergy evaluation. They should get eosinophils measured as patients with high eosinophils tend to have more severe disease. They should get their upper and lower airway evaluated at every visit, and treatment should be adjusted with attention to the full united airway. Both upper and lower airways go together, and monitoring for use of systemic steroids, since steroids have so many adverse effects. And these patients often get short courses of oral steroids from multiple physician groups or immediate care facilities. So there should be collaboration between primary care physician, otolaryngologist, an allergist, immunologist, or pulmonologist if they're managing their asthma and sinus disease. And this multidisciplinary management, especially now that we have quite a few biologics approved, should include biologics in their treatment plans. So in terms of biologics that are either approved for asthma or approved or in development for nasal polyps, Dupilumab, which targets IL-4 and IL-13, is currently approved for both asthma and CRS with nasal polyps. Omalizumab, which targets IgE, is currently approved for both asthma as well as nasal polyps. Mepolizumab, which targets IL-5, is also approved for asthma and CRSWNP. And benralizumab, which targets IL-5 receptor, is approved for asthma. It has been issued a complete response letter for CRSWNP in March of 2022. 
So one important thing in terms of multidisciplinary management is to engage the patient in the care plan. There is something called shared decision-making. This is where the treating clinician and patient share the best available evidence to assess risks and benefits of the treatment plan, and the patient is engaged with the clinician and makes a decision. There are quite a few shared decision-making questionnaires available, including one which is available for treatment of nasal polyps, specifically from the ACAAI site or American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, to help the physician or healthcare member, as well as patient, decide what is the best treatment option for their CRS with nasal polyps. Currently, for the last two years, I've been on a biologic, and I have to say that has been an absolute game changer for me. It has allowed me to basically do away with all of the other um, oral medications I was on. Um, It has created, um, for me, the ability to, you know, my, my nasal passages are clear. Therefore, I'm able to sleep, I'm able to breathe through my nose, I'm able to do physical activities that prior to when my, my nasal passages or sinus passages were packed with polyps, you know, you, you, you can't get deep breaths, you can't, you feel like you're not getting enough oxygen. Um, all of those things have, have been cleared up. I'm fortunate that about four years ago, I found a physician who was very well versed in my condition and he just is very proactive with biologics and with his patients and we discussed the pros and cons and you know he said I felt like he felt like I would be a great candidate for the biologic and I said let's do it and I have absolutely no regrets I will say you know it didn't happen overnight like I said I've been on it for two years so it did take some time but I was willing to stick with it and, and give it a shot. And I'm really glad that I did. I think it's really important for the healthcare providers to understand that this is not only a disease that affects the physical part of our body, which is our sinus cavities. This is also a disease that affects our mental health. It affects our other parts of our physical health. And I think that that can't be overlooked. Um, It's very important to understand how that plays a role in our, in patients' day-to-day lives. And it's just really important that as a patient, you advocate for yourself and you let these things be known to your physician, even if it means telling them over and over and over again, because it's, it's one big bundle of, of issues. We don't just have the nasal polyps in our sinus cavities and go about our day-to-day lives. Um, from the outside, we look fine, but there's a lot of stuff going on.
Let's take a closer look at some of the targeted treatments we now have at our disposal to treat these patients. We're very lucky in the last few years, we actually have quite a few treatment options. Let's start with dupilumab. Dupilumab is a fully human monoclonal antibody that inhibits signaling of IL-4 and IL-13 pathways. These are the two of the key drivers of type 2 inflammation. It was approved by FDA in 2019 as an add-on maintenance treatment for adult patients with inadequately controlled CRS with nasal polyps. The approval was based on two phase three trials known as sinus 24 and sinus 52. So dupilumab blocks IL-4 receptor alpha, which is shared by type 1 IL-4 receptor as well as type 2 IL-4 receptor, and it blocks signaling both by IL-4 as well as IL-13. Dupilumab was previously approved for quite a few type 2 inflammatory diseases. Let's go over some of the efficacy and safety and data of the sinus 24 and sinus 52. Here's a slide showing one of the primary endpoints of sinus 24 nasal polyp score, and you can see that dupilumab reduces nasal polyp score at week 24 significantly compared to placebo. All of these patients were on topical nasal steroid. And on the right-hand side, you could see that by eight weeks, nasal polyp scores go down significantly with dupilumab 300 milligrams every two weeks compared to placebo. And at end of 24 weeks after dupilumab is stopped, disease does tend to come back by week 36. Looking at nasal congestion score, which was another primary co-endpoint of sinus 24, dupilumab significantly improved nasal congestion. As you remember back, that is one of the most bothersome symptoms in patients with nasal polyps. And again, on the right-hand side, you could see improvement of nasal congestion quite quickly with dupilumab compared to placebo. Once dupilumab treatment is ended at week 24, congestion tends to come back in these patients. So in addition to its co-primary endpoints, dupilumab also showed efficacy and secondary outcomes, including quality of life and sense of smell. This slide shows improvement with dupilumab compared to placebo, looking at SNOT22, which is a quality of life measure in patients with CRS. Sinonasal outcome test 22 improved with dupilumab 300 milligrams every two weeks compared to placebo as early as eight weeks. It showed continued improvement through the 24-week study. However, quality of life then gets worse as dupilumab is stopped at the end of this 24 weeks. Another symptom that we talked about earlier that's very bothersome is this loss of smell. Here you can see that upset, which measures smell, improved with dupilumab significantly compared to placebo throughout the course of the 24-week study. Another way of measuring this loss of smell was by looking at daily loss of smell per week. And in this, you can see that at to 24-week study, dupilumab every two weeks improved smell compared to placebo. However, there was again loss of smell as the study ended. Here is data from the sinus 52 or the 52-week study. On the left-hand side, you can see that dupilumab compared to placebo decreased nasal polyp size in both sinus 24 as well as sinus 52, the 52-week study, where patients were either on dupilumab 300 milligrams every two weeks or a group was then switched from 300 milligrams every two weeks to 300 milligrams every four weeks. And on the right-hand side, you could see improvement in nasal polyp score or nasal polyp size compared to placebo throughout up to 52 weeks. 
Similarly, as sinus 24 and sinus 52, there was improvement in nasal congestion compared to placebo you can see on both left and on the right-hand side. And an important thing to remember is that there was significant benefit with dupilumab compared to placebo in terms of reduction in use of systemic steroids as well as in need for sinus surgery. In terms of safety, dupilumab was very well tolerated. There was no significant difference in terms of any adverse effects or any serious adverse effects. In terms of EGPA, there were two reports of EGPA in the dupilumab arm and one in the placebo. And one more adverse effect to note is that there were seven cases of conjunctivitis in the dupilumab arm compared to one in placebo. However, none of these patients discontinued treatment. The next biologic that I'd like to talk about is omelizumab. Omelizumab is a humanized monoclonal antibody directed against IgE and was approved in 2020 for treatment of nasal polyps. It has already been approved for treatment of moderate severe allergic asthma and chronic spontaneous urticaria. Omelizumab was evaluated in two phase three studies, polyp one and polyp two, for treatment of patients with CRSW and P inadequately controlled by intranasal steroids. In this slide, you see the inflammatory cascade that we had discussed earlier. This type two inflammation is characteristic of CRSW and P. Omelizumab targets the IgE antibody, so then the IgE antibody cannot sit on the allergic cells such as mast cells, and then those don't get degranulated. In terms of the clinical efficacy, both polyp-1 and polyp-2 trials showed that omelizumab was superior to placebo in terms of reduction of nasal polyp size. These patients, similar to dupilumab trials, and we'll talk about meplizumab trials, were all on nasal steroid sprays. In addition to reduction in nasal polyp scores, omelizumab also reduced nasal congestion score, which was a primary endpoint, significantly compared to the placebo arms. Omelizumab also had improvement in its secondary endpoint significantly compared to placebo. There was improvement in SNOT22, the quality of life measure in patients with nasal polyps, as well as improvement in sense of smell as measured by the OPSITS test. In terms of safety in the phase three studies, omelizumab was well tolerated. There was no significant difference in terms of adverse effects compared to the placebo arm. The next biologic that I'd like to talk about is meplizumab, which was approved in 2021 for CRS with nasal polyps. Meplizumab is an anti-IL-5 monoclonal antibody previously approved for asthma with an eosinophilic phenotype and hyper-eosinophilic syndrome. Meplizumab targets IL-5. IL-5 is the cytokine important for eosinophilic inflammation, and if meplizumab binds IL-5, then IL-5 signaling does not happen, and so it decreases eosinophilic inflammation. In the phase 3 studies, or synapse, meplizumab was significantly better compared to placebo in terms of reducing nasal polyp size. You can see on the left-hand side a mean of about 1 and also reduced nasal obstruction, which as we talked about earlier, blockage, congestion, or obstruction is a common symptom in these patients. And meplizumab was better than placebo in terms of the nasal obstruction VAS score. In the phase three studies, there was no safety signal. Meplizumab and placebo were very similar. It was very well tolerated. 
So we've talked about different treatment options for nasal polyps, focusing on biologics as that is one of our new treatment options that has been approved. However, we all as healthcare professionals don't know how to define response to biologic therapy. This has been looked at by our European guidelines through the Euphoria Expert Board, and they've suggested evaluating treatment at about 16 weeks. Many of us think sometime between 12 and 16 weeks, we should evaluate our patients who are on biologics. And some of the criteria to consider include, has there been a reduction in nasal polyp size? Has there been a reduction in need for systemic steroids? Has quality of life been improved? Has their sense of smell improved? We know these patients have comorbidities. Have their comorbidities improved? and to consider discontinuing treatment if there has been no response at about 16 weeks. These patients need to be evaluated regularly through treatment to change treatment depending on how they are doing. Okay, let's now talk about a few cases. These are cases that I see in my clinic with patients with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. The first case is Debbie. Debbie's a 42-year-old woman with history of asthma and allergic rhinitis. She presents to clinic with nasal congestion and decrease in sense of smell. As I mentioned, Debbie has asthma and allergic rhinitis. Previously, when she was skin tested, she was positive to dust mites and molds. Her lung function in clinic showed an FEV1 or forced expiratory volume in one second of 2.55 liters, which was 69% predicted. Her FVC or forced vital capacity was 4.22 and 85% predicted. Her ratio of FEV1 over FVC was 60. And as you can see, her FEV1 is on the low side, 69%, based on different criteria would be mild to moderate obstruction, and the ratio of FEV1 over FVC being less than 60 is consistent with the airway obstruction seen in asthma. Her medications when she came to clinic included floticasone nasal sprays, two sprays each nostril once a day, as well as inhaled corticosteroids LABA, a floticasone and salmeterol, 100 micrograms, one puff twice a day. On exam, she had bilateral large nasal polyps. Her lungs were clear. So in a patient like this, which we commonly see, what would be your next treatment step? I would treat her nasal polyps, and I started her on EDS fluticasone, one spray twice a day each nostril, instead of the over-the-counter fluticasone nasal spray. As I mentioned earlier, her lung function was not optimal, so I increased her inhaled steroids, LABA to fluticasone salmeterol, to 500 micrograms, one puff twice a day. I had her come back to see me in a couple of months. And Debbie, when she came back, actually, six weeks later, said that she'd been using the EDS fluticasone with some improvement in nasal congestion and some improvement in sense of smell, but it still was impacting her quality of life. Her breathing was better. Her FEV1 had gone up to 2.90 liters, which is 80% of predicted, so within normal. Based on the fact that Debbie still was having some nasal symptoms, we ordered a CAT scan and a sinus CAT scan showed, as you can see on the right-hand side, that on the left-hand side, there is some black space which is consistent with airway, but there is disease in her maxillary sinuses, her frontal, as well as our ethmoids. And on the right-hand side, it's all pretty much grayed out, showing significant sinus disease. On exam, 
Debbie still had bilateral large nasal polyps. So what would you consider doing next? I gave her oral steroids, 40 milligrams daily for a week, and then tapered it over a week. This course of oral steroids is similar to what's recommended by different guidelines throughout the world, including the recent yardstick paper that was published in Annals. EPOS suggests something similar. In addition, Debbie asked me if there were any other alternatives to surgery, and we spoke about biologics. As we had discussed earlier, there are multiple type 2 targeting biologics that are available. Debbie had previously not had sinus surgery, so she is surgery naive. On labs, Debbie did have eosinophils of 500 cells per microliter. So when I think of a case like Debbie, you know, she has type 2 inflammation based on the fact she has allergic rhinitis. She has evidence of eosinophils that are a little bit on the high normal side, so suggest type 2 inflammation. She has significant impact on her quality of life, so her quality of life is impaired. She has loss of smell. She has comorbid asthma. So she meets quite a few of the criteria that euphoria suggests for consideration for treatment of biologics. However, as we've discussed before, biologics are expensive. If she goes on biologic, we don't know how long she needs to stay on it. Does she stay on it consistently? And if a biologic is stopped, disease can come back. She never had surgery. So if this is based on shared decision-making where she, as a patient, and I discuss different treatment options, in my opinion, I think she does deserve at least one sinus surgery. However, if there were any reason that Debbie does not want sinus surgery or its surgery is contraindicated, then I think going towards a biologic as a next step would be okay. However, what I recommended for Debbie was that she go see the ENT physician and discuss the possibility of surgery first before I would consider a biologic. So what Debbie then decided after seeing ENT was to proceed with sinus surgery. And currently, Debbie is on inhaled steroids and LAPA for her asthma. She's on EDS flu. Her sense of smell has improved. Her congestion has improved after surgery. The second case is Joan. Joan is a 56-year-old woman with nasal congestion and loss of smell. She was diagnosed with nasal polyps 15 years ago. She has history of sinus surgery twice in the last 10 years. And about 10 years ago, Joan took aspirin for joint pain. And within 45 minutes, she had significant nasal congestion, sneezing, coughing, shortness of breath that required an emergency room visit. Joan has what we call aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease. This is when an individual takes ibuprofen or aspirin, a non-steroidal, and has worsening either nasal symptoms or both worsening nasal symptoms and asthma. Joan does have a history of asthma for the last 20 years. She is on inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta agnus or LABA. For her asthma, she's had a couple of courses of steroids in the past two years. And her last course of oral steroid was three months ago for worsening asthma. On exam, Joan had bilateral large nasal polyps. She had mild expiratory wheeze on forced expiration. Her FEV1, her spirometry showed an FEV1 of 1.78, which is 64% predicted, consistent with moderate severity. Her FVC was 2.85 liters or 90% predicted and normal. 
Her ratio of FEV1 to FVC is 62%, consistent with airway obstruction. On labs, Joan had a eosinophil count of 700 cells per microliter. Her IgE was 500. So what would you do next for Joan? So as I mentioned earlier, Joan has a diagnosis of AERD with moderate persistent asthma with bilateral nasal polyps. In my opinion, Joan's asthma is not well controlled. She has significant large polyps. So I treated her with prednisone 40 milligrams for one week, then tapered it over a week. I also prescribed her budesonide rinses twice a day. At follow-up in six weeks, Joan said her symptoms improved for about a month, but then have recurred for the last two weeks. So what would you do next? I referred her to ENT to discuss surgery because her polyps were significantly large. They were impacting her quality of life. She still had loss of sense of smell, as well as nasal congestion. With Joan, should you consider a biologic, as Joan has AERD and significant asthma, We know AERD is associated with significant risk of recurrence, more severe asthma, and also associated with worse sinus disease. Joan already has had two prior surgeries, so either ENT or biologic would be an option in my mind. In fact, I think she probably needs a biologic given her asthma and the fact she has AERD, so possibly both are an option. This would again depend on shared decision-making. So Joan did go see ENT. ENT said either option is okay for Joan to consider. Joan decided on a biologic. She was started on dupilumab. And at three months follow-up after starting dupilumab, Joan's sense of smell has improved. Joan's asthma is better controlled. She's needing albuterol rescue inhaler once a week. Her lung function improved in clinic. Her nasal congestion has improved. Her polyp size has gone down, but she still has bilateral polyps, and we recommend it. She follow up in our joint ENT allergy clinic in about two months to see if surgery is needed or not. Let's move on to our next case. Our next case is John, who is a 45-year-old man with history of chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. He had sinus surgery six months ago. He denies any adverse effects from aspirin or non-steroidal, so he does not have AERD. He presents to clinic with increased nasal congestion and blockage over the past three months. He has lost his sense of smell. His nasal symptoms are negatively impacting his sleep, his work productivity, and his social life, so significant quality of life impairment. He has a history of asthma, which was diagnosed 10 years ago. He currently is using his rescue inhaler two or three times a week for chest tightness with relief. He wakes up about once a week with a cough. His current management includes high-dose ICS lava for his asthma. He's on budesonide rinses and sinus surgery twice a day. He has received two courses of oral steroids in the past year for worsening nasal and lower respiratory symptoms. These were prior to his sinus surgery. On exam, John had bilateral nasal polyps with a score of about two on each side. His lung exam, his chest was clear. His test showed an FEV1, 58% predicted, so severe obstruction with 17% reversibility. His pheno, or exhaled nitric oxide, was 60 parts per billion. This is consistent with type 2 inflammation. And his eosinophils were 400. So what would you do next for John? 
John has bilateral large nasal polyps, significant asthma, severe asthma. He already had sinus surgery just six months ago. His symptoms have recurred, including his asthma getting worse and his nasal symptoms are worse. He has bilateral polyps. So I treated John with 40 milligrams of prednisone for a week. John also asked what else he could consider. This is where we would think of shared decision-making. We discussed both biologics and surgery or potentially both. In terms of shared decision-making, my responsibility is to share the best evidence that I'm aware of for both surgical treatment as well as biologic treatment, the impact of sinus disease on asthma, the impact of both on his quality of life, need for medications, as well as potential adverse effects from oral steroids. After this course, he will have had three courses of oral steroids in the past year. So with John, I discussed potential for impact on his bones, impact on blood sugars, as well as other side effects from oral steroids. In John's case, I recommended that we consider a type 2 targeting biologic since he's already had a surgical procedure in the last year. So in my mind, he has kind of failed our standard of care therapy. He has type 2 asthma. He has eosinophils that are more than 150. And I think biologic would make sense in his case. I also recommended that John continue with the budesonide rinses and that he follow up with the sinus surgeon to see if there is anything else that can be offered to John such as would he qualify potentially for a corticosteroid stent? This would be a decision, again, shared decision-making he can do with his surgeon. So John followed up two months after starting a biologic. He has improvement both in his asthma as well as in his nasal symptoms. His congestion has improved. His sense of smell is improving. He continues on the budesonide rinses. And he saw the ENT a week prior to seeing me. The surgeon was pleased with the nasal endoscopy and recommended John follow up with him in six months. So let's go over some of the questions that patients often ask me as we discuss biologics. So one of the questions patients ask me is, are the biologics that I'm going to use for my nasal polyps also going to help my asthma? So yes, there are studies in asthma specifically with these biologics showing decrease in asthma exacerbations, decrease in systemic corticosteroid use, and improvement in symptoms. In addition, the sinus studies also show that asthma often improves when these patients are on biologics. Another question I'm asked is, who would you consider using a biologic on, Dr. Peters? So my answer to that is, I tend to use biologics in patients with moderate severe sinus nasal polyps. I tend to use it in patients who previously have had surgery and have disease recurrence, which as you saw is quite common. I use it in patients with comorbid conditions, especially if they have moderate severe asthma, then it makes sense. And then the group with AERD tends to have the worst or most severe sinus disease as well as severe asthma. So that is one group that I tend to use biologics on sooner rather than later. And then finally, if someone cannot get surgery and has significant polyps, if there's some contraindication to surgery, then I would consider using biologics. A question I'm often asked is, if I get started on a biologic, am I going to be on it forever? 
My answer to that is we don't have data yet. I did show you some evidence that as dupilumab was stopped, disease recurred. However, we don't know how long to consider biologics for in patients, and hopefully in the future we will get more data on this. What we do know is that while patients are on biologic therapy, they have improvement in their symptoms and reduction in nasal polyp size. So in conclusion, CRSWNP is usually characterized by type 2 inflammation, often occurs comorbidly with other type 2 disorders such as asthma and allergic rhinitis. We have biologic therapies that target this type 2 inflammation that are approved for both asthma and CRSWNP, including dupilumab, omalizumab, and meplizumab, while others are in development. These biologics reduce polyp size, improve quality of life, and improve symptoms. As we have discussed earlier, CRSWNP is more severe in patients with asthma and AERD. Surgery alone cannot cure nasal polyps as polyps recur often after surgery, and it should be explained to patients that additional surgery may be necessary along with ongoing medical treatment such as topical steroids or rinses, and that their underlying comorbidities such as asthma and ARD also require continued therapy. And because CRSWNP has these comorbidities, multidisciplinary management is important. And it's very important that there is open lines of communication among the team and between the team and the patient. Thank you so much for joining me in this activity. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash TJV. 860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi.